Yes, Jesus. Here your people agree. We agree. You are worthy. With one voice, we proclaim your matchless name. Be lifted high this morning on the praises of your people. You deserve it. All the glory, all the praise, all the honor. The Lamb who was slain. We remember and we proclaim your death until you come again. Give us an anticipation. Give us a hope. Your hope. Your hope is our hope. Help us to long for your return. And until then, we proclaim your death. Continue to work in us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you reside in each one of those who are yours. Illuminate your word now. Give Pastor Rick a boldness, a clarity, a wisdom, and give us ears to hear hearts to hear, and hands to do what your word says. We pray that it would be powerful and that we would exalt over your word, worship you because of your word, love you more, and love each other more because of it. Jesus, you are worthy. Worthy. And it's in your worthy powerful name that all God's people said, amen and amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship and our kids can be dismissed to the lobby. I'm so glad you're here. Each week we have the opportunity to be able to open up God's Word, God's amazing and powerful and transforming Word. Jesus, God's Son, continued to capture our attention. The Gospels don't talk a whole lot about Christ's first 30 years, which was a normal life that Jesus lived before he started his public ministry. But once Jesus began to teach publicly, the action was nonstop. The first words out of his mouth had to be a bit shocking. It's found in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus said this, Repent. Repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Then Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. 
The long-awaited Messiah is here. The long-awaited Messiah is hoping. Well, everyone's hope was for the Messiah to restore and to bring about some great change. But it was mostly political in their minds. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom and systematically break down the poor views of God and what everyday life looks like underneath God's authority. Jesus came teaching and healing, which is actually destroying the effects of the fall and evil and modeling what the kingdom living and walking with the Father would look like. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's authoritative teaching about what normal life ought to look like underneath the reign and the rule of God. Today, we continue to focus on the Sermon of the Mount. It is Christ's longest recorded message, one that actually was shared about 18 months after his public ministry began. Last week, I talked about the foundational beatitude. God approves of those who know they are spiritually bankrupt and have a need for him. The kingdom of heaven will be theirs. Or the kingdom of heaven belongs to the broken. Or anyone who comes to the king humbly, embracing his authority in their lives. We'll be blessed. We'll enjoy the benefits of living underneath God's rule. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. But before we do, I'm going to pray. Father, once again, we, we come before you and just amazed that we can just come boldly into your throne room, that we can talk to our Father, our God the God who created this world, the God who is involved in every one of our lives. It just, it's hard to understand that, Father. But we come before you today asking you to teach us. Lord, we know that your word is powerful. We know that your word changes us, and we expect the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to convict us and to inspire us. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done and the opportunity we have to gather together to praise and to worship and to learn. We pray, Father, not only for this church and the ministries of this church, for those churches in our area. Some brother and sister converged churches come to mind. We pray for Cross Grace Point, excuse me, And we pray, Father, for Emmanuel. And we pray, Father, for Orchard, the one in McHenry. We thank you, dear God, that that you have brought these churches together and that they love you and they want to bring you honor and glory. May they, along with our folks, be salt and light as you send us out into a world that's hurting and discouraged. 
We thank you, Father, for all the teachers and all the ministries that are going on. We know right now our kids are hearing good news. They're praising you. And we pray, God, that you would teach them and inspire them. For all the things that happen throughout the week here, whether they be inside our walls or outside our walls, we pray, dear God, that you would give those folks energy and perspective. And would your kingdom come. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God approves of those who mourn, for they alone will be comforted. Let's try and understand the word mourn. There are nine words in the Greek language used for sorrow. Jesus uses the word here, which tries to convey the most severe of all these words. This word represents the deepest and the most heartfelt grief. The word carries the idea of deep inner agony, which is normally expressed by outward weeping and wailing and lament. Very specific, it is an external expression of something that's happening inside of you. And so Jesus starts off very early in his message, and he says, God, my Father, approves of those who grieve, who mourn, or wail. And since we're not there, we are wondering, what, what does he mean? What, what is Jesus talking about? Actually, he's talking about sin. People who lament because they have disobeyed God. Now, he's not speaking of personal loss or tragedy, but rather sadness and grief because of corporate and individual wickedness and oppression. But if we're honest, we just ask the question, who gets upset about sin? Or in this case, mourns or wails or laments about sin. Well, we're learning only the poor in spirit, only the broken. Those who are utterly dependent upon God can truly mourn over sin. You see, realistically, our attitude towards sin tells us a whole lot of how we see God. You see, God, God is holy. And perhaps we can liken God to the sun. Now, in some ways, this gets a little dangerous, but just walk with me through this if you can. Our sun, the solar system we're in, that sun is full of power and goodness. We are drawn to the sun. And if you've been around here for a while, we don't even know what that sun looks like, you know, at least for the last few weeks here. But we are drawn to the sun. But we also know how dangerous the sun is if we get too close. God is full of power and goodness. 
And as we understand who God is, and as we see him clearer, we are drawn to God. After all, he's the bread of life. After all, we know that he is the only one that will truly quench our thirst. But although God is powerful in good, he is dangerous to approach. Unless, unless we are pure, holy, and clean. As I said, God is holy, incapable of being in the presence of sin, and totally disgusted by it. Most of us hear that, and most of us try to understand God's distaste of sin and what holy really looks like, and we struggle with that. Let me try to give you, well, an illustration. It might be a poor one, but, but I think it will get the point across. Let's just say my wife and I are celebrating our 47th year of marriage. I I want to take her to a special place, a a restaurant just to honor the occasion and to enjoy some good food and to talk over all the blessings that we have experienced. So I pick Olive Garden. Don't laugh that. I mean, it's a little higher class than some and, and maybe not as, good as others, but, but Olive Garden, yes, that's the choice. So we get all decked out, and we get in, and we, Olive Garden doesn't even take reservations. Do you believe that? But we get there early enough, because we're older, you know? And we get there, and we come, and there's a table already prepared, and I let everyone know, hey, it's our anniversary. This is a special night, special night. So we get taken to a special table. And Sharon and I are both seated. But we look at each other. And we're just wondering, well, maybe they just forgot to clean up the dishes. Maybe. Because across from me, there's that water glass with the lipstick on it. And, and then there's coffee that's kind of half filled. And, and then you look at the plates, and I'm sure there's fettuccine Alfredo still in there and on there. And, and we both look and say, oh, okay, well, I'm sure, you know, this will get cleaned up soon. And we start talking, and finally... The server comes smiling and, and vivacious and, hey, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. And, and he said, can I get you anything? And, and we look at him and we say, well, I, I think, did someone forget to clean the table? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I, I just want you to know, Olive Garden has this brand new policy. We only do dishes once a day. W- what do you mean? 
Well, you see, as people come in, we find out we can save lots of money if we can just do the dishes once a day. So all we do, we serve people. We just pile the new entrees right on top. We just fill these water glasses, and everything just will be fine. And, and you look, and you go like, what, what? are you kidding? I'm going to go throw up right now. You know? And I'm only a normal guy with my wife. What I want you to understand is that trying to even eat or enjoy a meal or an evening off of dirty dishes of how many people have eaten on this before. We can't imagine that. We can't. But this is a little bit. It gives us a small taste of the disgust that God has with sin. He is incapable of having sin in his presence. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, he says this to a group of believers. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all of your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Peter is just warning and trying to declare to us and says, hey, hey, there is going to be an amazing time, an unbelievable experience when you eventually go and you meet Jesus. But right now, live as obedient children. Don't slip back, believers, into your old way of thinking, your old way of living. You didn't know any better then. You didn't understand how offensive sin is and all of the ramifications of sin. But now you must be holy. And to be honest, that probably scares us. Holy? I, I don't, you know, I, there's a lot of reputations. I don't know if I want to be holy. No, the best way of looking at holy is clean. The way I say, the best way of looking at holy is righteous. Clean, pure, holy is a big deal to God. You know, there's a preacher over in Scotland named Alexander McLaren. He actually died a little over 100 years ago. But as I was reading one of his sermons, one of the things that stuck out to me was his illustration. In the Scottish town where he lived, there was a gigantic factory, and it worked with steel. And they would get large, I guess, amounts of steel and put it through these humongous rollers that would flatten the hot steel into sheets so it could be usable. Well, in that town, everybody knew about this factory. And everybody knew that there was one thing 
the workers could not do. And that is get their fingers caught in the rollers. It had happened a few times, but what was the tragedy is that once somebody got their fingers caught in the roller, it was so large, it was so impressive and so powerful that at least back then you could not shut down the machines. It would just simply eat you up and draw you in and squish the life out of you. So we use this illustration. An illustration is not pleasant, but an illustration, I think, that gets it across. He said, a man who is working the press, who gets his fingers caught in the rollers, have two choices. Two. That's it. One is, let the roller do its work. Or the other one is, pick up the axe that's right next to the roller and chop your hand off. (laughs) Whoa, this is uplifting message today. You know, whoa, let's just... (laughs) I think we all get that. The choice is real simple as you're getting sucked in, right? And we would never, ever think of picking up the ax and doing that. But what Alexander McLaren was trying to say, that is how we ought to deal with sin. We don't understand the grab. We don't understand how heinous it is. So because we are sinful, we have a problem. If we want to connect with God, Now, again, Jesus was talking mostly to a Jewish audience, and they well understood how heinous sin was. They had a whole system, which was given to them by God, of blood sacrifices that would temporarily atone for their sin. If somebody sinned, they would bring an animal, the blood would be shed, and it would be atoned for for a little bit. Once a year, you've even heard of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement when the high priest would literally go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice and to atone for all of Israel's sins for that year. But it would only cover the sins. That's why our salvation is so great We are flabbergasted by God's love and his grace and his mercy. God loved us and sent Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, to die in our place, to pay our debt, and to satisfy God's wrath once and for all. A relationship with Jesus makes us holy. It gives us access to God. Our faith saves us from the penalty of sin. Although we are justified and holy in God's sight, we stand holy. We still can sin, which brings death and prevents us from intimacy with God. But the good news is that we have a great salvation, which not only saves us from sin's debt and God's wrath, but rescues us from sin's authority and dominion. 
You see, our faith in Christ's death and resurrection gives us power over sin. We have a new master. The Bible tells us when we come to faith, we become a new creation. And we have a new master. We do not have to serve ourselves anymore. We do not have to serve the sin bent in our life anymore. You know, I'd like to read just a few verses out of Romans chapter 6 and 8. If you have a chance, when you go home, I'd encourage every one of you to read through Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8. You'll be absolutely praising God by the end. It is so amazing. But this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, starting in verse 6 of chapter 6. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For, we di- for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Down in verse 16, don't you realize that you became or become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching we have given you. Now you are free from the slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. And then chapter 8, verse 1. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You see, even though we sin, we can confess our sins. And confession of sin and obedience to our Lord allows us to enjoy God's presence and blessing in our life. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John writes this, it's amazing. For if we confess our sins, own our sins, respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We stand before God holy. How amazing is that? We don't deserve that. But that's what God does for us because of Christ's death. You see, walking with God means we see sin differently, as heinous as it really is. You see, sin or disobedience hurts and offends God. If you don't have a very good relationship with God, that doesn't mean much. It doesn't. But if he's your friend and your savior, you begin to gasp. 
See, rebellion hurts and offends others. And sin hurts you and me, mostly because it thwarts our intimacy with God. Now, David, a man after God's own heart, one that actually we recently studied, understood how ugly sin is. You know, David didn't live and make all the right choices. But he understood who God was and understood that he could reconnect with God. And in Psalm 51, listen to David's prayer. He starts off, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize, David says, my rebellion, and it haunts me day and night against you, and you alone have I sinned. Down to verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean, Father. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. I, I understand that my rebellion has separated us. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Oh, God, do a work. Clean me. Change my attitude. Help me walk with you differently. And then verse 17, he says this. The sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O Lord. You all know that David's sin affected him. It affected his family. It affected his country, but ultimately, it was an offense against God. That's where David went first. Father, forgive me. I have hurt you. You are a good father. You are a gracious father. You are a loving father. My sin hurt you. Forgive me. Jesus in this sermon says, God approves of those who mourn, those who wail and lament when they see how their actions and their thoughts are contrary to God. You see, people who are intimate with God, who walk with God, they repent and they confess their sin quickly because they are aware of sin's awful consequences. You know, this church has elders. And although the elders are not perfect, the elders have certain commitments to you as a congregation. And I thought what I would do is read just one of the commitments our spiritual leadership have to you. And in the Constitution, it says this. We, elders, promise to quickly obey our Lord and to repent of our sin quickly or often. 
Well, why would you put that in a constitution? Like, like, is that that big? Yeah, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Not only for our spiritual leadership, but for every one of us. So God approves of those who mourn because of their sin. Mourning is an, exter- is an external expression of an inward reality. You see, the Spirit convicts us of sin, which leads us to mourning, which leads us to repentance, which leads us to confession, which leads us to restoration. In fact, Paul talks about this godly sorrow, this mourning over our sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read a few verses there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Let me share with you just a little bit of the background here. The Corinthians received a harsh letter from Paul, and it made them feel terrible. But Paul was confronting them about some sin. And then in verse 10, Paul describes this sorrow, this mourning. He says this, For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. Rescue. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow or worldly mourning, which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you, Paul says. You were so earnest. You had such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal and such readiness to punish the wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You see, godly sorrow leads to repentance, leads to change, a flurry of activities before restoration. Martin Luther saw this clearly. In fact, he wrote once that a Christian's entire life is a continuous act of repentance and contrition. Oh, I guess when we first read this verse, when we first hear Jesus' teaching, we scratch our head. Why is this so important in the kingdom? I'm not sure I ever have mourned over my sin. I'm not sure I've even seen anybody mourn or wail or lament over sin. But Jesus goes on and 
and tells us there is something sweet that happens. Not only do you have a restored relationship, but the result of mourning over our sin is comfort. Comfort. Only those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. John MacArthur, one of the uh, pastors that I read and try to get some insights, says this. Mourn is a present participle, indicating continuous action. In other words, those who are continually mourning are those who will be continually comforted. Now, let me try to explain that just a little bit. The pronoun that's used right here indicates that only those who mourn over sin are the ones who will be comforted. The comfort of Matthew 5, 4 is a future only in the sense that blessing comes after obedience. It's not future as in 50 years from now. It's futures as you obey, as I obey. We experience comfort that comes after this morning. And as we continue to mourn over our sin, we shall be continually comforted now in this present life. In other words, maybe I could say it this way. Comfort is a right standing with God. It's peace with God. When we mourn over our sin, we see how sin affects God others and ourselves we confess it we repent God says I will give you peace comfort now the truth is as you look at not only your lives but maybe even Christians in your life you don't see a lot of this happening Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you said, have I ever lamented over sin? Now, the message today isn't, hey, go home. Let's really work hard on that. The message is we don't see God as clearly as we ought. We need to spend time with God. We need to recognize how much God loves us and desires for us to experience abundant living. He wants you to thrive. He wants me to thrive. And this is one thing that will hamstring us. It's one thing that will restrict us. And he's saying, please, kingdom patriots, kingdom people are those who mourn over sin. So let's ask the question. Maybe you're being inspired. Maybe you're hearing God saying, hey, this is worth it. What keeps us from mourning? What keeps us from experiencing God's comfort? Well, the first thing I would say is that our culture's view of God. Our culture's view of God. We don't understand how loving he is, and we don't understand how holy he is. And, and oftentimes, we just kind of put God in a box. And God says, no, I dearly care about you. And I cannot 
have a relationship with you or walk with you or guide you or strengthen you or empower you if there's sin in your life. So many times, especially as people come to me and say, you know, Rick, the Christian life doesn't seem worth it. You know, I don't have joy. We start looking at different things in their life and oftentimes we find out that there's just unconfessed sin. You're not able to connect with God somewhere, somehow. So our culture's view of God keeps us. Almost like, well, God really can't expect us to do this, right? No, no he does. He does. Uh, what keeps us from mourning is our culture's view of sin, the world says, hey, God loves and marks on a curve, right? How many times are you going to get to heaven? Well, if I'm better than the majority of the people, maybe I'll make it. You go like, ooh, ah, nah, no. That's not what the Bible says. God loves us, but God doesn't mark on a curve. The church sometimes... The church sometimes focuses on God's grace to a place where we forget how heinous sin is. And God is gracious and God is merciful. But God hates sin. So I guess as we understand the culture's view and and maybe even some of the church's view, don't listen. Repent, confess specific sins, and forsake sin. That's the encouragement. That's what Jesus was saying. And then lastly, our culture's love of sin. Hasn't the enemy done a really good job in this area? Oh, wait, you deserve to be happy. Oh, parents, please don't tell me that your goal is to help your kids get happy. Please don't do that. All right? Happiness is not a good goal. What I want you to understand is that true fulfillment comes from obeying God, not by satisfying your lusts, or your desires, or being selfish. Oh, you know what? Uh, I'll party tonight, and I'll just walk a straight line tomorrow. I guess I would encourage each one of you that procrastination is the height of selfishness, in my opinion. We need to trust God, we need to trust his word, we need to trust his plan, and we need to trust his timing. Wow, Rick, this was kind of a hard message, and it was. Because as I look at my own life, I ask those questions. Rick, when is the last time you wailed, you lamented over your sin? Were you just casually confessing? Okay, yeah, yeah, kind of owning. 
But that's not the word Jesus used. I would like to right now ask you to do something. Over the next few minutes, I'd, I'd like you just to bow your heads. I'd like you just to shut your eyes. I'd like you just to have a private moment. And what I would like you to do is talk to God. Talk to God. If I could, I'd like all the house lights to go down. I'd I'd love just for an opportunity for you just to talk to God. Be honest with God. Maybe it's a time of reflection and and maybe there still are some things in your life that need to be confessed. Maybe it's about attitude. Maybe it's just, hey God, I don't really respond like this very often. But I'd like you just to be quiet. And and maybe prayer or say a prayer like, like David did and See, search me, Lord. See if there's something in me. Father, would you help me see sin the way you do? Lord, open my eyes to you in your holiness and help me see how much my rebellion actually hurts you. Spend some time, just a few minutes, just you and God talking. Father, when we read your words in Scripture, sometimes we don't pay a lot of attention. But Lord, this was a message that you gave that you wanted followers to understand. You you simply said that you approve, that you bless those who mourn over their sin. 
Lord, if we're honest, there's probably not a lot of mourning that happens over our sin. Maybe we're too busy, but probably we don't really see how holy you are and how our sin affects you and others and ourselves. God, we repent. We do. We we want you. We want to listen to you. And Lord, would you bring about mourning, lamenting, grieving for the offenses that we have made. Lord, we thank you for confession. We thank you that we can come boldly into your presence and and that your blood has not only justified us, but gives us power and authority so that we do not have to sin. We don't have to listen anymore. God, we love you. Move. Move, Father, through your Holy Spirit in us. Whether people are hearing online or whether right here, we we pray, dear God, that you would move in our people, that there would be revival, that we would listen to your word, and that you would work. We thank you, Father. We love you. We know we need you. We need you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.